This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. And good evening. Welcome to our Ruffinomics Utella class. Think outside the box, featuring our special guest, Mr. John Malden, and produced by the Rough Times. I'm David Wolf, your host for the evening. Howard Ruff uh, should be joining us as well. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Howard Ruff, his work, and the Rough Times. Howard Ruff is really a teacher at heart. He's helped some 600,000 middle-class families make a lot of money during inflationary times with gold and silver. But it's important you know the Rough Times is about a lot more than gold and silver. The Rough Times is a 15-issue, one-year subscription, plus weekly updates, and brings you a treasure trove of guidance to help you make money. Howard has been right most of the time for 35 years, and today he's 35 years smarter, and that's how he says it. The Rough Times is regularly priced at $215 for 15 issues every year. For those joining us on the call tonight, we will be offering a new subscription for only $179. That's a $36 savings, and uh, plus you get a free copy of Howard's latest book, How to Prosper in the Age of Obamanomics. That's included in the subscription price. If you're already a subscriber, you can renew for that same low $179, and if you don't have a book, we'll send one along to you. Howard would like everyone know, uh, everyone Uh, who is not currently a subscriber to have a copy of his book free whether you do subscribe or not simply send an email to service at roughtimes.com and let us know the name and address where you'd like it sent and uh, that's the Rough Times newsletter I want to tell you about our guest tonight. John Malden is a multiple New York Times bestselling author and recognized financial expert. He's been heard on CNBC, Bloomberg, and many radio shows all across the country. He's the editor of the highly acclaimed free weekly economic and investment e-letter that goes out to over one million subscribers every week. We're very privileged to have author, speaker, economist, and thought leader John Malden. John, welcome to the program. Good to be here. You have said, and I know you just corrected this, uh, you're looking at a 60-40 chance that we will slip back into a recession in uh, 2011 due to sort of a confluence of circumstances, the expiration of Bush tax cuts, GDP growth, 2% or less, and uh, a multiplier effect that happens. What do you see unfolding? Talk us through the color of the remainder of 2010 and into 11. Well, what the leading indexes are telling us uh, is that the economy is slowing down. And it's slowing down more than it should be at this time if it was a potential recovery. Uh, let's, let's go back to 2006 and, in, in fact, to August of 2000. Please. I said, hey, we're going to have a recession. Because you could look at the inverted yield curve, which is almost a guarantee of recession. And so, to me, it wasn't rocket science predict a recession. Now, it was a uh, interesting call because these inverted yield curves curve happens out a year in advance. So you're making a call for a recession a year before it happens, so you look like an idiot for six months. Mm. Um, but but and, and, and I did. I looked like an idiot. The market went up. That's fine. Um, but then, you know, ultimately you get proved right. Now, we're not going to get an inverted yield curve this time. And because the Fed is holding the uh, short-term rates down to zero, so you know as long as they're artificially holding those rates down, you're not going to get a uh, inverted yield curve. 
furthermore, John, this is Howard. I, sorry, I kind of came in late. I didn't coordinate my clock, my watches properly. So I lost. Uh, well, you, you 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 need to get a watch, Howard. This is the 21st century. I had the Timex special. That was a good watch. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't find it. Uh, incidentally. Um, could you explain the inverted yield curve for the benefit of my subscribers who may, are listening? An inverted yield curve is um, when, well, normal yields are like we see today. You get paid less for holding money short term than you get paid for holding it long term. If you're going to want a 30-year bond, they should pay you more for it. What happens in an inverted yield curve is that the short-term bonds go above the rates of the long-term bonds. That's, that's wrong. And it only happens, uh, it's happened twice, now three times in the last 20 years. Um, and, and if you go back for 1950, so if you go back for 60 years, every time you get an inverted yield curve for over 90 days, and, and there's some other caveats on the research, but basically you have a recession that's going to show up 12 months later. Uh, and that's what happened. Now, what I'm saying now is that we're not going to see an inverted yield curve because the Federal Reserve is holding rates at zero. They're not letting them float. Uh, so, I mean, if it was a normal business cycle, the Fed would already be raising rates, but they're not. And that's because we're at you know, almost 10% unemployment, uh, inflation is down below 1%. I mean, we're flirting with deflation again, and which is one of the reasons, quite frankly, that uh, Greenspan kept rates so long, uh, rates so low so long, because he was worried about deflation taking hold. So now we're to the place where deflation is a threat. It's a serious problem. And what happens when you're a... Uh, Federal Reserve governor or, uh, you know, Fed president at one of the branches, when you get nominated, they take you into a back room and they do a DNA change on you and you become viscerally opposed to deflation, unless you're, you know, Honig in Kansas City, in which case it didn't take. But, but everybody else is against deflation. And so now they've got to figure out what to do because if we go into a double-dip recession, and we'll talk about why I think that's going to happen in a second, um, deflations are by definition recessionary. I'm sorry, defla uh, I've got that backwards. Recessions are by definition deflationary. So if we go into a recession, when we've already got rates so very, very low, we could see um, uh, deflation take hold. The Fed won't be able to drop rates any lower. They can't pay you to put money up. Uh, that, that's very problematical. So, you know, the Fed has very few policy option choices at that point. Now, let's drop back um, to why I think there could be a recession. We're going to be at a slow-growth economy in the 1% range by the fourth quarter, I think. That's what the uh, leading economic indicators are telling us. It doesn't tell us they're going to put us into recession. It's just going to be slower. What we're going to do in the first part of 2011 is we're going to have the largest tax increase in the history of the United States. It's going to be on the order of 1% of GDP. And what we know from the research studies is that that has a multiplier effect of anywhere from 1 to 3. Uh, Christina Romer and her husband uh, did the research, and Romer is President Obama's uh, head of the uh, uh, Council of Economic Advisors, so it's not a Republican document. Uh, and she says these things have a 3x multiplier. So what we're talking about now is... Explain what that means. Okay, that if you have a tax increase or a tax cut of 1%, uh, 
of GDP, that you're going to have a 3% either increase or decrease in GDP over the next couple years uh, because of that tax cut or that tax increase. And what we've done is, is we're going to increase taxes, and that's going to have a direct hit to the economic body. In essence, the Keynesians, uh, the guys on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, are getting ready to have an experiment on our economic body, and they're going to do it without benefit of anesthesia. And we're going to find out if tax cuts or tax increases make a difference. I was on the Cudlow Show here just earlier, and I said, Larry, if we look up in March and we have a robust, roaring economy, then you and I, who think that tax cuts make a difference, we're going to have to eat our words and just go back and say, okay, we were wrong. Now, I had a conversation with Paul McCulley about this, and Paul says, no, 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 John, you're wrong. Because Romer's study is about taxes in general, not tax cuts, not tax cuts or tax increases on the rich. And so I'm going, but the rich, 75% of those tax increases are small businesses. That's where the new jobs are created. Uh, but it won't make any difference. So, you know, Macaulay's one of the leading Keynesians in the country. And so that's what they believe. And we're going to find out. It's this wonderful experiment where we take the uh, theories of, you know, dead white guys, Keynes and von Mises and uh, Fisher and, and um, uh, God, my, my, the, the Chicago School. Give me a help. Friedman. Throw me uh, Friedman. Friedman. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, you've you, you got to work with me here sometimes. I'm getting old, Howard. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm getting old. So we're getting old together. Um, I beat you to but, it. But we've, we've got all of these economic theories. And, uh, you know, so each school says, you know, my guy's right. And, and, and I think, frankly, they all have something to teach us, even Keynes. But they're not all right. They all have a different view. It's like the guy's trying to, you know, the blind guy's trying to tell you what an elephant looks like by feeling it. Um, and so you have to kind of... Sort through it. Uh, you know, people ask me what economic school I adhere to, and I say, well, I'm kind of agnostic. I worship at all the altars uh, mm. because they all have something to tell us. Uh, but if you um, take one of these guys and you take it to the logical conclusions, you're going to end up in an alley and you're going to get mugged. And, and the Keynesians are taking us down an alley, and I think we're going to get mugged. And, you know, so we go into a, a, a double-dip recession. So that's it. We're not going to be happy about it. John, so that... I, I've got a couple of questions to ask you, John. Uh, number one, uh, I've come up with a theory that I'm, I'm not quite sure I can prove yet, but I think it'll hold up, that inflation can be born out of a deflation. The government is going to... what does not want deflation because it doesn't want a recession or depression, right? Mm-hmm. So what do they have to do? They have to inflate, to offset it. They have to increase right. the, their spending, et cetera. And that's where the uh, uh, coming inflation is coming from, simply because we're in a deflationary period. And that's uh, not necessarily the future. It can weaken the economy. But we've had examples of, of weak economy. The economy is getting weak and having a, uh, a big-time inflation coming out of it. That happened in the 70s. And so... The, uh, when I'm, as a financial advisor, advising my subscribers what to buy, I'm looking ahead further, and I'm telling them to bet on inflation because I think that's what's coming. And so if you're going to bet on inflation, there are certain investments that respond to inflation. And like Will Rogers said, it's invest in inflation. It's the only thing that's going up. And that's, well, so that's, that's what I'm saying. Now, now, for a short term, it's going to look pretty bad because the... the uh, uh, deflation is not going to seem to be the, uh, a good environment for the inflation edges. But eventually it's going to pay off big time. Well, the, the answer to that is maybe yes, but. And what I mean by that is we don't know what Bernanke is going to really do. And we don't know what the Federal Reserve Board is going to let him do. 
I've now tracked five different Federal Reserve presidents who come out with speeches saying, not no, but hell no. We don't print money. We've got to be careful about this. Some of them are arguing that we should raise rates right now. I've had private dinners with, with and I won't name the names, with Federal Reserve presidents at the branches, and they're saying we need to be raising rates. So it, it's, a, it's a very interesting time in our national history because if you go back and you look at Bernanke's 2002 speech, he very clearly said, we have a machine called the printing press that we can deal with deflation if we get into outright deflation. And going back to my thing, you know, if you become a Fed governor, you become opposed to deflation. Because they, we, our national experience is different than Germany's. They went through, you know, the inflationary period. We went through the deflationary period. So we don't want to do deflation again. We'd rather do mild inflation or even not mild inflation, you know, 4, 5, 6%, because we know what to do with that. We know how to deal with that. You know, dealing with deflation, we never figured that one out. Now, so I, I'm, I don't think it's clear, Howard, that the government responds with um, expanding the, the uh, uh, balance sheet of the Fed, because that's where inflation is going to come from, not from the government running deficits. That's not, that's not inflationary. What's inflationary is the Federal Reserve expanding their balance sheet. And they have to expand their balance sheet more than the velocity of money drops. And the velocity of money is still dropping. I mean, it's, I don't want to get too wonkish with the, with the listeners here, but there's basically GDP is equal to the supply of money times the velocity of money. And you can work that around to where it's basically inflation is equal to the supply of money times the, 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 the uh, supply of money. So you can increase the supply of money, which the Federal Reserve has done. I mean, is there, they've increased their balance sheet to, by $1.5 Inflation hasn't shown up. In fact, we're seeing it's getting less. It's under 1% because the velocity of money is still dropping. And we don't know how much the velocity of money will continue to drop. Well, now, how we are they going to increase the velocity? How have you increased the velocity of money? Well, you increase the velocity of money by increasing uh, uh, the activity in the economy. I mean, one of the things that increased the velocity of money, and if you look at the curve, it, it grew dramatically, was all of the financial innovation that we had, the securitization uh, that we had. Uh, with you know, where we securitized everything, auto loans and you know subprime debt and credit cards. Well, that securitization is going away, and that is reducing financial innovation, and that's slowing the velocity of money down. Now, I mean, the, the velocity of money is just how fast money gets turned over in the economy. It's, 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 and right now, it's getting turned over slower. And over large periods of time, decades, the velocity of money is mean reverting. That means it goes back to the mean, it goes below it, and it goes above it. And we're, we're not even back to the mean yet. So we could see the Federal Reserve increase the supply of money even more and not see inflation catch hold. And the biggest example of that is Japan. They've been trying to create inflation in Japan now for 20 years. Mm. The supply of money is growing. They're running monster deficits on an order of magnitude that makes what we're doing look like kindergarten. And they've still got deflation. Um, so it's not clear that that's what's going to happen. We don't know what the Federal Reserve is going to do. I mean, what's going to happen in November, Howard? Do you think the Republicans are going to take the House? Well, I think there's a chance. But at the very least, the uh, Republicans are going to weaken the Democratic Party in the House and the Senate. Whether they'll take action yeah. control, I don't know. I, I, 
I think they're going to be able to take the House. Well, well that's which means opinion. which means that new spending programs are dead. And at that point, the, the, the stimulus that was going to come is going to have to come from quantitative easing by the Fed. And the question is, will the mood of the country tolerate that? And I, the, the answer is, you and I don't know. We don't know what Ben Bernanke can talk the other Fed governors and the, and the diff, different uh, district uh, presidents into doing. We just don't know. Yeah, well, you know. This, we're, we're, in, we're in such uncharted territory. I, mean, I wish uh, I could tell your listeners that I knew what the hell was going to happen, but I don't. <laughs> well, I've been making having to make decisions not knowing what the hell's really going to happen for sure, but so I can only rely on my uh, on history and my instincts and basically uh, the way I feel it's going to go. And consequently, uh, I've never had a time when I've made a major investment call when I was absolutely sure I was right, because that's, <laughs> that's foolish. No one can be. And I think you put it very well. But my personal, well, I mean, opinion, my personal opinion is that what we're going to see is eventually after this period of deflation, we're going to get into a period of inflation. And that's... Well, and if the well, Fed starts to increase their balance sheet. And yeah, but if the I Fed think, starts to increase I their think balance sheet... De- I think that's the default position for the Fed. Okay, well... We're going to... We're going to we're going to see Bernanke's leadership really called into question here, and if he can talk them into increasing their balance sheet, then we could see some inflation. That and that's what we have to watch. And so, you know, for an investment policy, you've got to be more nimble than you've been. You just can't, uh, you know, buy something today and come back in five years. You need to pay attention to it. Okay, I think, uh, again, we're never sure, absolutely positive of anything. I haven't been in my 34 years of been publishing absolutely sure of any major calls. You can only rely on what your guts and history tells you. And consequently, uh, my, my guts are telling me that eventually, with the mechanism being more complex than we can talk about here, and including what we've said so far, that, in, that out of this deflation, eventually the Fed is going to have to increase the balance sheet because ultimately, if the government is running deficits, the Fed has to increase the balance sheet. The government, the Fed has to accommodate. Consequently, well, I, I have sat with central bankers in this country who said they will not, there is a limit to what they can do to tolerate the deficit spending of the government. And I'm not they're sorry, more, they're, I'm they're more concerned about the repu- they're, they're more concerned about the reputation of the Fed than they are about the balance sheet of the U.S. government. Now, is that a majority? I don't know. There are some people who think it is. There are some people who think it isn't. And and it, it and that's what makes a for a horse race. But it, what's, it's what makes for some uncertainty. Yeah. Well. Uh, I- I will agree with you that if you look at governments in general throughout history, we're going to end up with inflation. I'm just not certain it's this time in this history. Okay, well, we shall, we shall see. And I've, uh, I've placed my money. I've made my bets and have my subscribers. By, 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 by the way, now, I don't... You know, I know you're, some of your, your you placed your money and you placed a lot of it on gold. And uh, I don't buy gold. No, that's not what? correct. My, Are you not buying I, gold? I placed, I placed a lot of money on silver and the derivatives and also on mining stocks. And I, I right. believe that's going to make you for every dollar you might make in gold, you're going to make three dollars in silver because the fundamentals well, okay. are different and fundamentals are much better. Let let me say this. I think that gold and silver are proxies for currencies. And I think the currencies, the fiat currencies, are more of a problem than inflation is a problem. So uh, I want to own gold, even in a deflationary environment. 
Um, so, uh, I, I think there's. I think that's that's a place to to, to put your money. John uh, uh, Howard uh, generally recommends about a thirty percent uh, portion, if I have this right, of the perf- of a portfolio in uh, metals. Uh, do you have a number? Do you have a, a sense of how to structure a portfolio vis-a-vis the gold question or silver? I think it really boils down to the individual and and what his where he is in his retirement age yeah. and what his. Uh, uh, individual specifics are yeah um so you know i don't want to put a number on it uh, because howard's not regulated and i am so if i start putting numbers on it I sure I, sure uh, i guess I, but 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 do i want to have a significant portion of my money in metals yes i do uh, one thing I wanted to draw uh, that you have in common with Howard Ruff is that uh, you don't recommend buy, being 100% um, 100% invested in stocks like many traditional brokers might advise. Um, Howard's clearly not a, a maverick investor, and Howard, please chime in anytime. But uh, what is the John Molden think outside the box idea about about allocation? Uh, not 100% in stocks. Um, the, and there's a part two to this question. Would, okay. Go ahead, please. If, if, let, let me, we'll take part two in a second. Let me sure. go to part one right please. now. If you are saying stocks is in stocks for the long run, the Jeremy Siegel, you know, buy and hold, I don't think you should have, you know, more than 0% of your money in stocks. Mm. Because this is not, we're in a secular bear market. We've been in one since 2000. They average about 16, 17 years. Uh, so we've still got some time to go. This is going to be a fluctuating, volatile market. So this is not the time to buy and hold. You know, you you buy and hold when valuations drop, you know, into the low uh, uh, double digits uh, to the single digits, um, and then we can see some appreciation from there. And not this silly, uh, uh, forward-looking. You know, operational earnings. I want reported reported earnings. Mm. I mean, you, you hear these bulls talking about, oh, we're at 13 or 14 times valuation is good. But they're talking about operational earnings, which, you know, that's earnings before interest and hype. Right. Uh, earnings before bad stuff. Uh, reported earnings is what they report on their tax reports, and that's what you should look at. And reported earnings are still very high in terms of, of valuations. Um, the, this is a trader's market. And if you're not a trader, or if you don't have a, somebody money with a trader, then you should go find something else. There are plenty of other places to put your money. Um, corporate bonds, fixed income. Um, I happen to be a fan of uh, small cap biotechs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think biotech. I think biotechs are going to become a bubble at the end of the next decade and of this decade. And you know, once in my life, dear God, please just let me be at the beginning of a bubble. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, I want. Uh, uh, you know, I, I like if we have a double dip recession, which you know I think. Then I think the. Um, Emerging market stocks are going to get creamed just along with everything else. And that's when I want to start buying the emerging markets. Because I think at the bottom of the next recession, that's going to be the trade for the rest of the decade, is emerging market stocks. And I want to find managers in those emerging markets who know the local markets, who understand them, and... uh, you know, I don't want somebody buying Thailand stocks or, or uh, Vietnamese stocks that, that's based in New York. I want them based in Thailand and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that could. I think that's I mean, that's where the growth's going to be. It's it, just look at the, um, the the words we use. We have the developed market, developed ed past tense, the developing market ing, future tense, current tense. And I think that's where uh, the, the real play is going to be in the stock market. Now, will there be individual interesting plays in the United States and Europe? Of course. We're not going to roll over and play dead. There's going to be some very, very great stocks 
wonderful opportunities. But you're, but buying indexes won't be what you want to do. Right. What you want to do is is buy is you want to you want to have a very targeted rifle shot approach. John, you spend some time, in, and I sat with Bullseye Investing again uh, uh, last night, uh, and I noticed that you do. Uh, I wanted to ask you about value, and we're talking about many different sort of uh, geographic places where corporations may exist. We may choose to buy or not. But is there a concept for value that you can leave our listeners with tonight to, that might change the way they think about an entry point or an exit point in terms of P.E. ratio, price-earnings ratios? Well, what I argue in Bullseye is that we shouldn't look at the secular cycles in terms of price because everybody is focused on price. And when you look at price, there's no clear trend that shows up. But when you look at valuations, what you see is these long, arcing sweeps. And on average, like I said, about 17 years, anywhere from 13 to 20, where prices go from high valuations to low valuations back to high valuations. So far, they never stopped in the middle. Define valuations. Valuation is price to earnings ratios, price to book, price to sell, sales. I mean, you, you can right. kind of look at it however you want to. You can make, you can create your own index of multiple valuations. However you do it, you see these big, long, grand sweeps. And that's how you can time the market in general. When we get back to you know low uh, uh, double digits, you know single digit valuations, honest to God valuations, okay, none of this BS that you get with uh, the, the guys on you know the bulls on CNBC that are wanting you to buy their fund. Yeah. Um, then you then we can say, okay, we've entered a secular bull market. I mean, it was 1982. 1981. Did anybody want to own stocks back then, Howard? No. You, I mean, we, we were there. Nobody wanted to own stocks. They were terrible. Who wanted them? They were garbage. But the valuations were so low. And we had, and, and, and 80% of, I'm, I'm, I misspoke, 60% of the next bull market from 82 to 99 was simply increasing Valuation multiples. We went from single-digit multiples, eight, nine range, to you know close to thirty. Um, well, you know that's a huge run. The part of it was just earnings growth, and part of it was inflation. Incidentally, I let me just beg off here. Uh, I uh, 1982, I started recommending uh, bonds and some stocks, and we made a lot of money in the stock market and certain selected stocks. So uh, that yeah. it's. But I, I didn't base it on evaluations. I had, I'm trying to remember what my instincts were telling me at the time. It was telling me it was time to buy stocks. Well, the, the, so, the, so I did actual, buy stocks back then. The actual best trade in 1980 was to buy 30-year zero-coupon bonds. That made you more money than buying stocks. Uh, I mean, it was just, and, and rolling them over, it was just this, you know, because Volcker was just crushing the bond market, um, and uh, or, or not the bond market, crushing the uh, 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 economy and crushing inflation. And and you could buy zero, you know, eighteen to thirty eighteen to twenty percent thirty year bonds. You, you know, know that were eventually. I wasn't smart enough to recognize that at that time. I don't think I, I can't even remember what my reasons were. I just know I got on the right side of the market, and my instincts told me to do it. But I wasn't smart enough to know exactly why I was doing what I did. Well, it was <laughs> those those were great trades back then. Um, Gary Schilling was probably the the guy that really made the best call uh, right at you know right at the peak, but. Uh, He's he stayed with that call now for thirty years, so he's he's been consistent, if nothing else. Um, the um, but, but the you know when you when you the, the cycle will change. It always changes. It never stays, but it does take a long time. So we've probably got, if history is any you know guide, on average, we've probably got another five or six years in this cycle. 
Mm. In which case, you don't want to be long stocks. You want to be, you want to trade them. You want to, you know, have fixed income. You want to, um, you know, you can have some some bullet rifle stocks that you like, but you don't want to be buying indexes. John, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about about to the extent that we're recovering here in the U.S. It's a jobless recovery. What are you seeing in terms of the structural em- employment situation and and what's it going to take to create jobs here in this country? Well, we have a problem in that this isn't a normal business cycle recession. This is a balance sheet recession. And individuals are having to fix their balance sheets. Uh, plus, banks are having to fix their balance sheets. So banks are lending less. I mean, we're down almost 25% in terms of commercial lending from where we were at the peak just a few years ago. Yeah. That, that's, that's enormous. I mean, you talk about the velocity of money. <laughs> I mean, M3, M3, Howard, which the Fed doesn't track, but other people do, which has never gone negative. I can't remember a time in my life it's been negative. It's now negative in the U.S. M3 in Europe is negative. Um, John, a question, a quick question if I can. M3, that's the, is that a measure of velocity or a measure of supply or, or some blend? No, that's the measure, that, that's the measure of every possible dollar out in the universe. Okay. Um, then you, and then each, each uh, other, M2, M1, M0, MZM, they all subtract something. Um, and the Fed stopped measuring M3 a few years ago. Uh, because they said it doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. It's a pointless number, and there's no statistical correlation to anything. And they were right up until recently. And that's one of the interesting things. Uh, what we're going to see is economic historians are going to go back 15, 20 years from now, and they're going to go, the Fed, just about the time when M3 began to mean something, decided that it didn't mean anything, and they stopped uh, measuring it. Mm. Uh, it's one of those great ironies of, um, you know, that only an economist can appreciate, I guess. Um, and I, I don't think there was any conspiracy theory there. They just, they looked at the data and said it doesn't mean anything. And the data they were looking at, they were right. But it's, and, and they had 50 years worth of data, by the way. It wasn't just... Um, uh, you know, some recent thing. So uh, now it's starting to mean something. And, and that's showing us that we're, we're in a deflationary period. It's been talked a lot about, John, that um, corporations have very pristine balance sheets now and they seem to be accumulating a lot of cash. How does this figure in as we uh, look forward? Well, we, we, we're in a world of haves and have-nots. The big corporations, in fact, have great balance sheets. They've got cash. Um, somebody on Cudlow tonight said it was $1.7 trillion in free, in free cash. Yeah. Ready to, ready to be invested. But small businesses are not getting money. And that's where you're seeing the uh, commercial lending. I mean, you, I've, I've used this uh, graph a couple times in the last two months in my letter. Uh, commercial lending's dropped uh, from over 1600 to almost $1,200 uh, billion. Dollars. So, I mean, $1.2 uh, oh, That's a massive drop. Oh, yeah. uh, so the small businesses, their balance sheets aren't pristine. Their uh, uh, cash flows are tough. They can't get access to credit. They don't have uh, access to the bond markets. Corporates, they can go sell their bonds right now, and they can get good prices for them. But a, a business that's running 15 or $20 million or, you know, 2 or $3 million, they're going to have trouble getting money um, unless they don't need it. And that's a problem. That's one of the reasons we're, we're seeing when you do the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Bill Dunkelberg, my friend, is their chief economist. And he sends me uh, some summaries of, of the surveys they're doing. And uh, businesses in general, small businesses in general, are uh, not hiring. Their plans to hire are low. Are low. 
They talk about tight money schedules. They're concerned about sales. Um, the big corporations, when they talk about the S&P 500, half their sales are coming from overseas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where their profits are coming from. So it, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's not apples and oranges. But it's more like apples and pears, maybe. I mean, there's kind of some similarity, but there's still some differences. I wanted to also cover um, your view on this financial regulatory uh, situation that's happening, emerging. Is it going to address what's required to sure up the financial system, slash the inappropriate risk-taking? Is this going to take care of it from your perspective in any no. way? <laughs> okay. It doesn't address Fannie and Freddie at all. Right. They've completely ignored it. Um and, and that's the source of a great deal of the systemic risk. They are putting uh, derivatives on exchanges. And I'm having a running debate with um, some of the, my friends you know, in, the, in the blog world. Um, I think it's the appropriate thing to do. I do not want banks um, writing credit default swaps that aren't adequately backed. That's what got AIG in trouble. Yeah. Uh, I mean, j- using their balance sheet to write credit default swaps without having some reasonable limit, without having to put up uh, capital, is wrong. Put it on an exchange just like we put uh, stock options and index options and corn and grain and treasuries. You have to put up some margin. Now, does that mean that it's going to cost more, and the banks will make less profit. Yes, it does. So the, the big financials are going to make less money. And my short reaction is, I don't care. You got us in trouble. You can't do that. Yeah. Stop it. Um, so that was good. Do, the, the, the problem with this bill is that the three or four main areas they're trying to address they create committees or assign the Fed or somebody else, say, you guys figure out how to do this, and we're going to empower you. And all of those measures took a few pages. And then there's twelve or 1,300 other pages in this document that even Dodd admitted that nobody's read it. We don't know what the hell is in there. Yeah. It, it's very disconcerting. I'm afraid it's going to be another Sarbanes-Oxley where we find out later that we're going, oh, my God, what did they do? Um, well, don't you think that's I mean, true of so many things that this administration had proposed with lengthy, lengthy bills that no one's read that they vote on and that no one really understands? And then we find out after the fact there's some things buried in there that we didn't even didn't even know. Didn't well, realize. I mean, the, 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 the one thing we kept being promised is if you like your insurance plan, you can keep it. And, and, you know, that's become a lie. I can't keep my insurance plan because they're, they're pricing it out of existence. So they're going to drop it. So I'm going to have to go get another insurance plan, which is going to be more expensive and I'm not going to like as well. Uh, that's just my personal experience. So I'm, I'm not very happy about that. Well, just about uh, every legislation the, we've seen, uh, number one, is too long. Number two, no congressman or senator has actually read it. And number three, it has all kinds of unintended consequences. Well, the, 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 in the, in the unintended consequences, I mean, they're just, it's, it's run amok. Um, I shot a, a note off to Newt Gingrich. He and I correspond every now and then. And I said, Newt, where are you when we need you? Somebody just to stand in the middle of the, you know, house and go, no, you can't do that. And because there's nobody... Nobody that's doing that right now, and, and the Republicans don't have the numbers to do that, and, and I know. But, man, it's disconcerting, Howard. Now, it's the Republic will live, we'll survive, we will muddle through. We, we made it through the Carter years. I hope you're right. Well, we will. We always do. I mean, you know, we're a free market economy at, at, our, at our core, and we'll figure out how to get around it. And quite frankly... I think this whole crisis will blow over by 2020, and then we're going to see the roaring 20s again. Uh, I mean, technology increases, um, 
the new telecom world will be uh, uh, totally Wi-Fi. Our cost in, in telecom and our, our services are going to go way up, and our costs are going to go way down. The biotech world is going to be in a monster revolution. Uh, nanotechnology will be, in, be kicking in. Uh, there's all sorts of scientific, uh, um, wonderful things that will be happening. So, yeah, I think we're going to have another uh, uh, technological boom in the 20s. But getting there, when for the next five or six years, we're going to have to be reducing government expenditures. That's reducing stimulus. There's no question that if you stimulate the economy in the short term, it makes a difference. The Keynesians are right about that. But reducing that is going to reduce that stimulus, and it's going to be a drag on the growth. But if you don't reduce it, if you keep running the deficits like they were, that drags money out of savings that should be going into investments and puts it into government. And there's only two ways to grow the economy. You grow it by increasing your population and increasing productivity. That's it. And we're okay with increasing the, the, the population. We're not doing it as wisely as we should be. We're just letting anybody and anybody come in. And we should be more like Canada and, and saying, if you've got money, come in. I mean, my view is we should let anybody come that would, in that would buy a house. You buy a house, you keep your nose clean for four years, you get a green card. And uh, uh, we could solve the housing crisis <laughs> right away like that. But uh, that's just too simple. Nobody wants to do that. Uh, but the other thing is we have to increase productivity. And the only way to increase in productivity is private investment, not government spending. Government spending doesn't increase productivity one penny. Right, Scott, so what, it has to be businesses to doing it. There's nothing sacred to you, huh? And nothing sacred to me. Today, the uh, it's, government is supposed to produce money, spend money, is supposed to have a multiplier effect, is supposed to benefit the whole economy. Well, what we're finding out is that the multiplier effect on, on government spending, which the research showed, which the Keynesians disregard, is that the multiplier effect is negative. Um, the, the reality is that you know, and, and, and you're probably like me. You may even be more like me, Howard. I'm an expert in bad choices. I've got seven teenagers and only got one left who's made, making bad choices now, but the rest of them are adults. And, and, you know, and then I've made my own bad choices. And as an economy, we've made our bad choices too. We made short-term gratification decisions that overrode the long-term uh, uh, better decisions. And now we have to deal with it. And that means we're going to have a slow growth muddled through economy, more frequent recessions, higher unemployment. Uh, and that's just the hand we've dealt ourselves. I mean, you know, you tell your teenage kids, if you make this decision, you're going to have to deal with these results, and you're going to have less happy decisions in the future. Well, that's what we've done as an economy, and that's what we are. There's no way to get around it. There are no good choices anymore. There are no ways to get out of this. We're simply going to have to work through reducing our deficits, which is uh, a headwind to growth in the short term, but in the long term, it's what we have to do because we have got to get to the place where we have m more money left over for private investments, which increases our productivity. And, I mean, that's classical uh, uh, Fisher uh, economics equations, but it's true. It's an identity equation. It's true in all times and all places for all countries. And the Keynesians know this to be true, but they ignore it in the short term. See, what Keynes said, and this is where the Keynesians are ignoring, what Keynes said is in the, when, when the government, when the country's in a uh, recession, the government's got to spend. But when the country is, is making money, the government's got to run a surplus. So the Keynesians only get it half right. They're willing to spend, but they never were willing to run that surplus. Uh, and so... You know, and then the Republicans came along and said, let's spend more money. 
um, and, and, you know, pox on their house. Well, to me, the, uh, the thing that uh, the Keynesians are absolutely wrong about, okay, let, let's say you're in, uh, uh, things slow down so they start spending. And then when the time comes to start spending, you realize they, or to uh, reduce the spending or to cut it, they've uh, begun programs that have become politically irreversible and they can't do it. It's right. politically impossible for them to cut back. So what they've created is something that has a, a, a political momentum that they can't deal with. And so you can't just turn programs on and off like they, like pure Keynesianism would suggest we do. How are they going to spend money? They spend money by creating a, a program and a bureaucracy. How are you going to reverse that program and that bureaucracy? It's politically impossible. Now, there's one other element I want to deal with. We're, uh, we have not discussed the politics of all this. Or maybe it's not something you want to deal with. Oh, I've, I've talked politics in my life. Pardon? I said I've talked politics in my life. Okay. Well, my personal opinion is that we're in a dangerous uh, political environment uh, run by doctrinaire uh, socialists and so forth uh, in the White House and in the Congress. And consequently... Uh, they're not responsive to typical, uh, to the to the usual uh, political signals. For example, you can't force them to the. They can't be forced to the middle politically because you can't force uh, ideologues to the middle. They're going to go their own right. way regardless. And so the, uh, as as long as this is the political environment, I don't think these things are going to end. And you have, you have a five or six year uh, uh, period that, that from now when you think things are going to get better. But that assumes that we change the political environment. Well, I think the political environment is going to get changed um, this uh, November. I really do. Um, And I think that uh, um, you could see the House go uh, Republican. I, I, I was with Newt at a Fox studio uh, about six, seven months ago. And uh, we were talking, and I said, do you think we can get 30 congressmen in uh, the House next year? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I thought, well, man, he's pretty confident. So do you think we can get 40? And he says, what's the unemployment number going to be? And I said, pushing 10. He goes, oh, yeah. Um, and and I think we're going to see a great deal of dissatisfaction uh, among in, in, in voters. Now you know as long as we don't split it into you know Tea Parties and Republicans and you know all of that stuff. If the conservatives can just manage to hang together, um, I think we take those forty votes. And uh, and, and, and at that at that point you've got a fairly um, um, cohesive group that's going to say no. We're going to now have to um, balance budgets. You know, pay attention. Um, and it, it'll, hopefully, it'll be kind of like what happened with Gingrich, in that. Um, he didn't cut expenses so much. They didn't really cut spending. They just stopped allowing people to spend more. And eventually, the growth overtook the uh, um, economy, and we caught up. And then the Republicans got completely in power and messed it all up again. But You know, I was on NBC story. this last week on the Squawk Box, and uh, so... They asked me what I thought was going to happen politically. I said, well, I'm anti-incumbent. Uh, the, the, uh, there's an old saying that says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And consequently, even the guys that I helped elect and some of them I went to college with that are in the Congress have been captured. They all want to belong, become part of the club. And they were mostly on the Republican side, and now they, they've been voting for spending. And consequently, uh, I'd like to see a clean sweep, not just... To put the Republicans in charge, I'd like to see the incumbents cleaned out. And I don't care whether they're Democrat or Republican, as long as they're conservative. 
Well, and, and the, the problem is you don't see any conservative Democrats. And, um, you know, because I, I could agree with you. Let's just, you know, if, if you and I probably agree, if we could just say everybody that's in Congress today has got to go. Um, and so let's just start with a clean slate. But, but that's not going to happen. And so, you know, what you have to hope is that the Republicans get their um, uh, get a born again attitude. Well, I've been trying to get the Republicans to have a born again attitude for many, many years now. Thirty four years I've been, and uh, and every time you think you they had a born again attitude, like they did in '94, all of a sudden they got captured. They joined the club, and they started. And they had their hands on the levers of uh, the money making levers, and so they they moved those levers, and they. And they voted for stuff. And, and under Bush, for example, I admired Bush for his stand on uh, against uh, uh, radical Islam, and I think that was commendable. So at least he was fighting it, and unlike our present president. But he was spending money. Uh, they created the most spending of any any time in the in the known universe, and, uh, and so he got captured by the 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 momentum seems to be irresistible. Once they get their hands on the levers of, of the money-making machine, to spend, spend, spend. Well, I, I don't disagree, and, and and you know, before he went off to um, um, Washington and became president, I, you know, I knew the I knew Bush, and he was a, he was quite frankly a great governor. Uh, but he. As you say, he got caught up in that um, that whole uh, um, uh, Washington D.C. let's spend money routine. Well, so did Reagan. Uh, Reagan uh, cut the taxes, but he did not slow down spending, and so we had huge deficits as a result. They get blamed on him, but it was the spending side that failed. Cutting the taxes actually reduced the income, or, or excuse me, increased the income, but the. Uh, the deal was that the Democrats were going to cut spending, and they didn't. And Reagan found himself unable to stop that. So, in effect, he even got captured by the machine. Mm. Incident, I'm looking at a picture of Ronald Reagan here in my office that he sent me uh, to Howard Ruff. The very best regards, Ronald Reagan. He was a friend of mine. It bothers me to criticize him, but uh, I think he was in the, the grip of forces he simply couldn't control. I want to just say something about you. I want to make sure I get in before we're, we're through. Please. John Malden has been my friend for many years. And John publishes a, a very much in-demand free newsletter that I think every, all of you should subscribe to. I get one every Saturday and, a, uh, uh, and a, uh, another commentary during the week. And I'd like all my subscribers and all the listeners to subscribe to your free newsletter. So tell us how everybody can go about that, John. Well, just go to johnmalden.com and click on Thoughts from the Frontline and, and stick in your email address, and you're one of my one and a half million closest friends. Mm-hmm. And, and while we're doing the mutual admiration thing, you're, you know, Howard, we first met in 82. Um, and, and frankly, we should do some time just to, you know, come on for 30 minutes or so and just tell stories about the old days of the publishing industry because we could sure tell that was, There were some great stories back then. Um, I mean, I was so young. I was a puppy. Uh, and, 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 you know, you were the rock star. Um, the, the, but we had such fun uh, back in the days when there was no Internet. There, you know, you couldn't do this type of thing. Um, and um, it was all print. And, you know, you had to get something out and get it through the printing press and get it into the mail. And it was a completely different environment than, than what we live in. And, I, you know, I, I go to conferences now and you speak to the young kids and they just assume, you know, the young kids being the 30-year-old guys that are writing newsletters. And they just assume that, of course you can get it out. You can write whatever you want to, and it'll be instantaneously published. Um, and, 
you know, um, they don't get the, you know, groundbreaking, uh, you know, shattering the, the old uh, uh, world uh, things that you did, you know, that Richard Russell did and the, the, all that group that prepared the ground for these guys so that uh, they, they could do this. And we owe you in the industry a great debt. And, uh, I, for one, am very appreciative. I'll give you my address if you send me a check. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's in the mail. I've heard that before, too. <laughs> You're talking about the velocity of, you know, we talked about the velocity of money. You're really talking about the velocity of information, aren't you, John? Well, that, the velocity of information is is increasing, and it's only going to get worse. Um, does, does, it, does it, did it cheapen the, we talked about value, too. Did it cheapen the value of the information that's flowing? In other words, it's so easy to get it out instantaneously that there isn't the, the pause to think it through. Is that as you were speaking about talking to younger news uh, writers. I, I Is that part of it? The, I think that coming up, we're going to see in this decade more and more value being placed on people being able to filter the information for you. Mm. Uh, because right now it's, it's like drinking you know, you know, life through a fire hose. And That's what just, you and I do. Oh, Huh? We we filter the information for him, well, and 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 right. but I try to filter it, and and but we're going to have to do. It's going to become more formalized, I think, because the, the way we're going today is just it's for for the average person it's unsustainable. Uh, I mean, the surveys show that we're all busier today than we were a year ago. And we were busier a year ago than we were the year before because we're being overwhelmed with, you know, you know, 100% connectivity. There's information being thrown at us. Uh, yeah, my job happens to be to read information and to, to you know, distill it and to write. Um, but I'm still reading two, three hundred pieces a week. Wow. I'm sure you do too, Howard. I mean, it's an enormous amount of stuff to digest. Oh yeah, it is. And a lot of it is just plain junk. When I go through my email every day, and there's a, a lot of email there, about about 50% of it is just plain junk and uh, dubious junk, and a lot of it driven by strange philosophies and attitudes, and and there's a lot of junk. But who decides what? Well, mine, mine's might. probably more than mine's probably more than 50%. Yeah, well, uh, so who's going to sort it out for you? Well, I'll try. <laughs> That's what I try to do. And uh, and so with a, with a few core philosophies that I that I just stick to over and over again, and and hopefully I'll continue to do that. And I but I always read your stuff, John. Well, thank you. You're very kind. I mean, no, I, I'm I not remember kind, this. You're very good. Well, I appreciate that. JohnMalden.com is the site to subscribe to uh, your free newsletter that goes out to a million and a half people. I, I wanted to just wrap it up for the benefit of uh, ordinary Americans. We're looking for some principles, something to wrap our brains around and our families around in terms of managing debt and increasing household savings. Um, certainly that's a part of it. Our retirement uh, Health care concerns. I mean, just some real grounded, uh, a note to leave us on, if you would, John. One of my abiding principles is that we muddle through. We're going to make it. Like I said, we got through the Carter years. Um, we made it. That, that's how we do it as a, as a culture. Um, now, some of us have some individual pretty serious bumps in the road along the way. But that's what we have to deal with. The country will make it. Um, better times are ahead. I'm, I'm a believer in that. But in the meantime, while we're trying to sort through what I call the end game, it's the end of the debt super cycle. And I'm writing a book right now called The End Game. Um, hopefully it'll be out this fall. And trying to talk about how we deal with all of this uh, uh, 
sovereign debt crisis that, that, that we're going through, because it's, it's going to be a major deal. Uh, the reality is, as investors, we have to be more nimble. You've got to pay more attention. Uh, you've got to be more focused on the return of your money than, re- than the return on your money. Um, it, it's a... It's a, it's a more difficult time. It's, it's not the 90s anymore. We just have to recognize that. And the 90s aren't going to come back, at least for another decade. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, thank you. I hope we can do this again. Howard, any parting words for the evening? Just, I've enjoyed listening to John. I, don't, uh, I, I hope that his optimism is better than my pessimism and it pays off. Because I'm, you know, I'm getting the age where my, my kids are getting into their into their 50s. In fact, I'm now a, a great-grandfather, and I, I want a decent world for them to live in, and I'd like it to be a good world. But right now, the things that are going on in Washington are so baffling to me, they scare the wits out of me. And I hope that John is right and that we're going to muddle through and things are going to work out. I wish you the best, very best. I wish you very well, John. Well, thank you very much, Howard. You're very kind. And, you're, and, and you are one of my heroes. Thank you. John Malden, thanks so much for joining us on the live teleclass uh, produced by the Rough Times. Uh, we really appreciate it. This, whole, this whole teleconference will be on the Rough Times website. Yes, we've been recording as we always do, and you can find it at uh, www.roughtimes.com, R-U-F-F-Times.com. And uh, please check our calendar there at RuffonomicsU uh, at theroughtimes.com for upcoming teleclass events with Howard Ruff and friends. If you, there's someone you'd like us to feature on the program or a subject you'd like us to cover, please let us know there as well. Thank you uh, t- to Howard, Joanne uh, Allen, and the Rough Times, and John uh, Malden. Thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. All the best, Howard. All right, everyone, have a good night. Happy investing. Remember to be a maverick and leave the Wall Street herd. Good luck with everything. Have a good evening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.